A reading from Ruth 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are, are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. Uh, this morning, we are continuing on in our series on the book of Ruth. We're on uh, Ruth chapter 3 today. And uh, now, if you haven't been with us over the last few weeks, uh, it's kind of like jumping in uh, to like episode three of whatever series you've been watching on Netflix, right? Um, and uh, so uh, you, you don't really know everything that's happening, but there's usually like a little recap um, that you can kind of skip if you know it, but you can go through. So um, there's, there's a few details um, that we'll kind of recap from the last uh, couple of chapters of Ruth that will help orient us to this passage. But as, as we dive into this passage, um, I want to make a note that uh, this, this passage of Scripture deals with some pretty heavy stuff. It's, it's especially heavy if uh, you're a woman who's experienced abuse, um, or if it's, you're someone who has experienced displacement, um, or racial discrimination, or trauma. And it can be pretty intense. So, so I just want to give you a heads up about that as we dive into this passage. So, uh, so let me just pray um, as, as, we, as we look. Our Father, we thank you that uh, you are a God of love. Um, we thank you that uh, it is your desire to be close to us. Um, to meet us in our deepest hurts and our fears. We thank you that you meet us when we look into your word, and we ask that you do that this morning. Guide our time. Um, would you help us to see Jesus? Um, would you help us to grow into his likeness? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the book of Ruth, um, it's kind of like a four-part miniseries. It's four chapters, four parts. Um, we're in part number three. 
And it's, it's a high drama passage. Um, there's everything so far in the narrative is, is on the line. It's hanging in the balance. And last week, Jim showed us uh, how this story of two immigrant women, Ruth and Naomi, and a barley farmer named Boaz, demonstrated what loving kindness is. And that's one of the words that we use to try and capture the meaning of the book of Ruth. Uh, it, it's what it's all about, the main theme. Um, the goodness and the love of God as it's seen in the midst of some brutal circumstances. Loving kindness is, is like a shorthand way to try and explain the meaning of the Hebrew word hesed. And as Jim pointed out last week, uh, hesed is a word that's just too big to fit into any one English word. Um, I liked what he said last week, so I'm just going to repeat it here. Compressed into hesed is God's love and kindness and mercy and grace and compassion and generosity and beauty. It's all, all crammed in there. And, and because it's such a big word, we only ever get fragments of it reflected back in God's people when they're demonstrating this loving kindness to others. But those fragments of love, uh, they overflow. They're pouring from one person to another person simply because they can't be contained. And so Ruth chapter 3 is a continuation of loving kindness that overflowed from Ruth seeking to provide for her mother-in-law by taking the risk of trying to glean the barley fields, on to Boaz providing for and protecting Ruth after he discovered her gleaning for food in his barley fields, to Naomi when she's revived by the news of how Ruth has been cared for um, and Naomi in turn has been cared for. And, and now Naomi is stirred out of her despair. Naomi is starting to think about the possibility of Ruth's continued existence, long-term living in Bethlehem. We get a hint of this in, in the first, uh, first couple verses of chapter 3, where Naomi says, Should I not seek rest for you, Ruth, um, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative? Now, now this, this hope for a future in the land is still, uh, to be honest, um, kind of like wishful thinking up to this point. Hope's been kindled, but it's a small hope in the face of the obstacles that lie ahead. And, and to be honest, Naomi has had um, pretty good reasons to despair and just to stay in this state of despair so far. And so what we're going to do is we're, we're going to go into that despair with Naomi. But as we do, we're, we're going to be looking at how loving kindness breaks into that despair. And we're going to see three things, three, three effects that reverberate out of loving kindness. And the first one is that loving kindness challenges our stereotypes and our prejudices. Second thing is that loving kindness is risky. And the third one is that loving kindness forms character. All right, so, so loving kindness. First, it challenges our stereotypes and our prejudices. Here we need to, as I said, dive into Naomi's despair. And here we need to focus a little bit on a little bit of cultural and historical background that lies behind everything that's going on. It's a very different world than New York City in 2021. 
we back up to the beginning of Ruth, we're told in chapter 1, verse 1, this takes place in the days when the judges ruled. These are dark days, and they're especially dangerous days for women who are on their own. After Israel's leader Joshua has died, God's people fractured into groups, um, kind of almost like warring feudal states. So. And there's two sayings that are repeated throughout the book of Judges, which records what happens during the time of the Judges. The two phrases are, the people did evil in the sight of the Lord, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so there's this downward spiral throughout the book of Judges as God's people do what is right in their own eyes and do evil in the sight of the Lord. And uh, things get so bad during this period that the last story in the book of Judges, um, which is what comes right before the book of Ruth in our Bibles, is one of horrific abuse and murder of a woman. And this, this, this abuse and murder of a woman drives all of the tribes of Israel into war with each other. And after a series of bloody battles, the final record of Judges that we have is that of the men of Israel killing all the men in the city of Jabesh-Gilead, then stealing all of the women who survived that city, and then going um, off to another city and abducting all the women there, and then giving all of these women as brides to the men of the tribe of Benjamin, who they were all fighting with to begin. Like, it, it's just, it's a giant mess. Uh, it's very unsettling times. And Bethlehem, um, where Naomi returns to with Ruth, um, it actually appears to be a, a bit of an oasis in the midst of chaos. Um, it's a place where people seem to care about following God's law in a land of lawlessness. And, and there's even some kind-hearted people like Boaz who have risen to prominence there. But when we read in Ruth chapter 1 that Naomi and Ruth are heading back alone to go to Bethlehem, um, this is the world they're venturing out into. It's dangerous. And the place that they're leaving from to get back to Bethlehem, um, it's going to haunt them too, all the way throughout our passage. It's Moab. And so, uh, um, it, it's like, has anyone here ever, like, just not want to be identified with where you're from? Um, that, that's kind of kind of how, how Moab is. Um, Moab is actually a really strange place for any um, Israelite to seek refuge. Um, if you remember, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, takes Naomi and their two sons off to Moab when famine hits Israel, um, which is probably related to Israel's disobedience to God. Um, so famine's afflicting the land. Rather than turning to God, they go to Moab because for some reason there's food in Moab. Moab is enemy territory. But more than just enemies, Moab has a long history with Israel. Israelites are forbidden from marrying Moabites. It was the Moabites that repeatedly refused to allow the Israelites safe passage through their land after they had left Egypt. And they even went so far as to hire a prophet named Balak to curse the Israelites. Right? So, so the, Moabs, the Moabites just... just um, it's not the place that you'd think to turn to. Um, and, and the Moabites are also descended from Lot, Abraham's nephew, um, which is a story we will return to in a moment. So not only are Naomi and Ruth vulnerable widows coming from an enemy nation, um, but they're failures too. 
Naomi is a failure simply because in that culture she has no husband and no sons. That's how she's regarded in that culture. Um, they all died. Ruth is a failure um, in that she wasn't able to have a son after years of being married before her husband died. And she's a Moabite. So in, in that culture, um, these women have no social standing. They have no hope for a future. They're consorts with the enemy, um, and this follows them around everywhere they go. They're left on the brink of ruin and gleaning scraps off of the fields. So, so, so think about that. Um, we, 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 we live in New York City, right? At, at least most of us do. I know um, there, we, we have people from all over the place on Zoom sometimes. Um, but but um, think about New York City. You know, some of us uh, grew up here. Um, some of us came here drawn by the opportunities um, or allure of a job or a career or school. Um, or, or maybe it's just getting away from where you grew up. And New York has this reputation, right? Um, like, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. Um, there's even a song about that, like Frank Sinatra, um, New York, New York. I'm, I'm not going to sing it for you. Um, it's all about glamour and, and making it big, right? Um, it's kind of a, a romanticized view of living in, this, in a big city. Uh, but, but New York has another side, right? Um, I'm not really a Frank Sinatra guy. Um, I'm more into stuff like Jay-Z. Um, and he's got one of those other New York anthems, um, Empire State of Mind, right? And, and it paints a little bit different picture of New York City, um, right? He says, I'm the new Sinatra, and since I made it here, I can make it anywhere. Used to cop in Harlem. Hola, my Dominicanos, right there up on Broadway. I'm not going to rap for you either. Um, you don't want that. Um, but, but he paints a picture of the streets, right? And, and he's, he's still got this, if I can make it here, I can make it anywhere vibe. Uh, and yet he highlights a lot of the people in the city that, that are often get ignored and marginalized. But the question is through all of this is, um, what happens when you don't make it, right? There's a lot of people um, who haven't made it in the city here, right? And, and this year has been, been, been brutal. What happens when you have to go back to the place you wanted to get away from, right? And how do you view others who are struggling to get by right now? Right, it's one thing to return home victorious or accomplishing something. Um, it's another thing to come home admitting defeat and having to face everyone that you left behind. And then this is starting to get at the shame that these women are carrying. Naomi went away full and now she's empty. Maybe, maybe you've experienced that. Maybe there are people experiencing that who need your loving kindness. Well, what, I, what I'm trying to get at is that by the time we get to our passage in Ruth chapter 3, the way that this passage is written, the way, way everything flows, it plays up the reader's expectation, your expectation and my expectation, that these women, especially Ruth the Moabite, are questionable in their character. All the way until Boaz exclaims that Ruth is a worthy, a noble woman in verse 11. And when Boaz makes that exclamation, he exposes the prejudice in our hearts and the prideful way that we look down on others who are different than us. The way we view women, or the way we view immigrants, or the people who live in that building, 
or whoever our other is. Here's how that plays out. Naomi, newly revived from her despair by the generous provision and protection that Boaz has provided Ruth throughout the harvest season, has now hatched a plan, right? She reminds Ruth that Boaz is her relative, and, and since he seems to have taken an interest in caring for Ruth, Ruth should get all dressed up, go over to the threshing floor where Boaz will be working since it's harvest time, wait until he falls asleep, go and uncover his feet, and lay down and wait for him to tell her what to do. Now, to most of us, this probably just sounds weird. But we, we have to keep in mind two things. The first is that under the Old Testament law, there are provisions within the patriarchal system to care for widows. Um, remember that women on their own in that culture don't have many rights and they don't have much hope. And so in Deuteronomy 25, there's what's known as the Leverate Law, um, whereby the widowed woman, um, and this sounds weird to our culture, the widowed woman is to be married to her brother, to the brother of her dead husband, so that the family line can be preserved. And that, that's a way of just um, maintaining your means of, of living and, and then passing on your family line. Um, it's really weird in our culture, but, but it's a matter of survival in Naomi and Ruth's. And so even though uh, Boaz is a, a more distant relative, um, Naomi concocts this plan for, for Ruth to, to see if she can get married and have a future, right? And this is Naomi's loving kindness on display. Um, she's thinking that at least her daughter-in-law can live a full life again. So Naomi has been lifted up from despair and she's, she's starting to think, well, well maybe, maybe there's a future for Naomi. Maybe I can get them, get, get them in a good spot. Um, at least I'll be good for something. But, but the second thing um, that we need to note here is that there's a backstory that sows doubt in our minds as to whether this is all so well-intentioned. In, in Genesis 19, we have the story of Lot and his daughters, um, which is actually the origin story for the Moabite people. Um, Lot and his daughters are living in a cave after the city they lived in was destroyed, and they've camped out there long enough that, uh, that they've been in isolation, and Lot's daughters want to preserve their family line. Um, but there's no men around for them to marry. So they get their father drunk and they have him father their children. The stigma from that story is what Naomi and Ruth are bearing as we read our passage in Ruth. Right? It's like, what are these, what are these women from Moab up to? We've got two women and there's a guy. Like, are they trying something sneaky like Lot's daughters? Right? Even the language used in Naomi's instructions is provocative. Laying down and uncovering feet can be euphemisms that, that take on greater life when we understand that usually the only time a woman would visit a threshing floor was if she was a prostitute in that time. Right? So the way this is written actually makes it very easy, us, easy for us to believe that these women have questionable intentions. Um, but, but, but it exposes our own hearts as we read on and ultimately see that Boaz will call Ruth a noble woman. She's not like those other women. And we have to we think back 
to how Ruth so far in this story has consistently reflected God's loving kindness. So Ruth's loving kindness um, actually brings us to the second effect of loving kindness that we see. And that loving, that, that loving kindness is risky. Okay? And it's in seeing this risky loving kindness that we realize that our fears that these foreign women are up to no good are unfounded. Ruth and Naomi are continuing the I am going to outlove you more than you can outlove me contest. That's what's going on. They're actually embodying the call the Apostle Paul gives to us in Romans 12 to outdo one another in showing honor. But it's risky. Naomi's plan is risky. We know the land and the time that they're in. And the threshing floor that Naomi is sending Ruth to has a reputation. It's outside of the city of Bethlehem. It's nighttime, which is when the winds are more favorable for tossing up grain for winnowing. And that's why Boaz is out there. And, and, and it's a place where women don't go there, right? Women don't go there unless you're a prostitute. So there's a risk. There's a high risk of mistaken identity. And when Naomi tells Ruth to pay attention to where Boaz lies down in the dark, this is a safety thing, right? You don't want to lay down at the wrong man's feet and uncover them outside of the city in the time when the judges ruled. Now, I just want to say that like, there's risk here, um, but it's not a reckless, unthinking risk, right? There's much wisdom and planning that goes into this risky endeavor. Right? And there's lots of signs already that Boaz is going to be true to the character that he seems to have portrayed so far, that he is a noble man. This is not a random shot in the dark. But then there's another risk. There's the risk that Boaz isn't all that keen on marrying Ruth, the Moabite. Right? It's one thing to show love and compassion to people who you can keep at a distance to offer security detail and send home bags of grain after a hard day's work in the fields. But it's another thing to welcome into the family a Moabite. Right, in our culture today, let me tell you, we're not that far removed from a time when it was illegal or socially impossible for black and white people to marry each other. Right, now I'm from Canada. Um, my dad's white, my mom is Indian from Trinidad. I've got stories. Um, even from Canada, um, especially within the church. Even up to this day, living in a city like New York, um, the, there's stories about, about this stuff. And, and I'm not going to go there now with specifics. Um, if something you want to talk about, like hit me up after the service, I'd love to talk. But, but, but loving kindness is risky. In the face of the culture around us, in light of our own capacity, to not do the good that we want to do, in light of the ways we take the worst stereotypes and prejudices we hold about people who are different than us and assume that it is what people who look like and act a certain way are. We might upset some people through our loving kindness, but is that something that you are willing to take the risk to do, right? I think the question is for, for us as Emmanuel, as a community, um, is will we be a community 
where loving kindness overflows in awkward and awesome ways to people that you never thought you'd be close to, right? Will we be a place of refuge? Now, fortunately, we know that Boaz comes through in the end. He's willing to do what Ruth asks of him. When Ruth gets back to Naomi and tells her what has happened, Naomi's really, really excited, right? This man's not going to rest until he settles the matter. But what Naomi didn't anticipate was how Ruth one-ups her in loving kindness again, right? We see this in the subtle way that Ruth changes her approach to Boaz from what Naomi instructed her to do. So Naomi calls Boaz a relative in, in verse, uh, verse two. Um, but Ruth ups the stakes when she's talking to, Moaz, to, to Boaz in verse nine by calling him a redeemer, right? Ruth is appealing to a different Old Testament law and combining it with the love right law. And, and what she's doing is asking Boaz to purchase the land that belongs to Naomi's family and in doing so, not just securing Ruth's life through marriage, um, but going back further and securing Naomi and Elimelech's family line. She's looking to fully restore Naomi's standing in their society. Again, this is risky. It's a huge ask, right? And I haven't even brought up the fact that up until this point, Ruth was barren during her whole past marriage and the prospect of children is also kind of in the realm of fantasy. But Boaz is utterly astonished at Ruth, right? And he affirms that she is a worthy woman. She is a noble woman. That, 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 that's only used there and, uh, and uh, it's only used to describe Boaz before. It's also the word that is used um, at the end of the book of Proverbs to describe a woman, a godly woman. Um, this is high praise and Ruth's risky act of loving kindness it forces out the best in Boaz as he seeks to settle the matter um, which is what we'll get to next week when, when Boaz goes and tries to figure this out loving kindness challenges our stereotypes and our prejudices loving kindness is risky and finally, loving kindness, it, it forms character. It forms Christian character, right? How are we formed as a community of loving kindness? Ruth and Boaz actually set a pretty high bar, right? And I think, though, we all fail at this kind of love if we go at, at it on our own strength, right? We might be successful here and there, but we won't sustain it in the long run. We like to do what is right in our own eyes. Yet we need each other, especially those other people who get under our skin and we normally don't associate with in any other context other than the church, right? You know who you're thinking about. And here we need to look to the person who generations after Ruth is born in Bethlehem, whose name is Jesus, right? Jesus, who uh, did you realize as part of his family relationship to Ruth is multi-ethnic. He got Moabite heritage from his great, 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 great grandmother. And it's Jesus that we need to come to who enables us to come into God's presence and experience the selfless, life-giving, loving kindness of God that overflows into our lives 
and changes us so that we can pour out loving kindness to others. The letter to the Ephesians tells us in Ephesians 2.16 that Jesus has reconciled us to God the Father by his death on the cross and that somehow that action God takes, in that action that God takes, all that is broken and hurt and confused in us and gives us in return all the good things that in turn kills hostility between people and unites us together as the people of God. So as we see and experience the loving kindness of God in Jesus, it forms us into a community. Ephesians gives us the picture of a house being built up around the cornerstone of Jesus. And that loving kindness spilling out in our relationships with each other because hostility has been killed, it causes to grow us, us to grow up into maturity, to a place of peace. This is why living as a Christian always happens in relationship with other people. So it starts with us turning to Jesus, right? It starts with us beholding Jesus. It starts with us experiencing the loving kindness of Jesus. And then we are empowered by continually turning to Jesus, the one who makes all things new, who brings life out of death, and who restores what's lost. So let's entrust ourselves to Jesus. Let's turn to Jesus. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.